This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am interviewing John Galligan about Bad Moon Rising, which is the third book in the Bad Axe County series. He teaches writing at Madison College, where his experience is enriched by students from every corner of the local and world communities. He has won awards as a feature journalist, sports journalist, and short story writer before settling on a career as a novelist. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, John. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm doing fine also, and I'm really glad you're here to talk with me about Bad Moon Rising. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to talk about it. Good. Well, we usually start out with an author just telling me a little bit about the book, so for those that haven't read it yet, they'll understand what the story's about. Sure. The The book is the third in a series, and it takes place in a part of Wisconsin in the southwest corner along the Mississippi River that's unique geographically for uh, not having been glaciated. So it's a very rugged, beautiful region and very rural and very poor. And so my character is the first female sheriff in Wisconsin. Her name is Heidi Kick, and she is trying to manage crime in this county. And in this particular story begins when a, a homeless man from a city is found dead in a ditch in her county. And she has to figure out how that connects to some things that are going on in the community around a heat wave that's occurring and around some troubles that are going on with her own reelection and also with one of her kids acting out. So she's trying to solve a murder, trying to track down what maybe is a serial killer um, during a heat wave while wrestling with an election, reelection, and family trouble. I would love to hear more about your inspiration for your main character, Sheriff Heidi Kick, and then just for the series generally, how you got the idea to write it and all about it. Sure. I mean, this, this, like a lot of the things I end up writing, kind of happened by mistake. I was wanting to write about this area, and I'm sort of have fallen into crime writing. So I was researching rural crime to find out, okay, what, you know, what, what are the things that are uniquely or at least interestingly part of the rural crime scene? And I came upon this study that fascinated me. It was an academic study about sex trafficking. And the researchers, had gone out and asked law enforcement leaders across the Midwest from rural communities, which were 99% men, about sex trafficking in their jurisdictions. And they kind of went, huh? What are you talking about? We don't, that doesn't occur. This, the researchers then went and asked the very same questions of rape crisis centers, women's shelters, emergency rooms, counselors, mental health professionals, many of whom were women. And they gave the absolute opposite answer. It's an epidemic. And so this really woke me up. It got my attention. Men and women seeing 
reality differently based on who they are? And what would happen if you put a young, assertive female sheriff down in the middle of this community that's been ruled and governed by the good old boys forever and not even seeing some of the realities that are going on in the community? So I light bulb goes on. I took a hard right and came up with Sheriff Heidi Kick, who I already been thinking about and actually is sort of a, a a new version of an old character. I've always been fascinated by young women from these communities who I, you know, I read about in the newspaper and I see it, who are just so incredibly versatile and accomplished. They they are straight A students. They're on the rodeo team. They can drive every kind of vehicle. Um, they can shoot. They play softball. They're in the play, um, and then they run for Apple Queen or Dairy Queen or Sturgeon Queen or something like this. It's just these incredibly well-rounded powerful young women. And so I gave her a backstory where she is transformed from somebody who in this environment is very privileged to the point that she's the Dairy Queen, undergoes a transformative event in her life, hits rock bottom and reemerges in law enforcement and gets appointed interim sheriff and is suddenly in charge of everything. So based on that, I, I, the first book in this series is called Bad Axe County, and it's Heidi Kick uncovering a sex trafficking ring that actually passes through her community between Milwaukee and Chicago and the fracking fields out in the Dakotas. And then the next book uh, is about her uncovering a um, fight club that's doubling as a basically training camp for white supremacists in her area. And then this book comes along and it's about her wrestling with the problem of homelessness as it's leaked into her county and some perhaps unperceived but very real impacts of global climate change. So you take a relevant issue, a timely issue that we're all dealing with and that's in the news a lot, and sort of take that as your focus for each one of your books. Would you say that's right? I do. Yes and no. I would say that especially with the one that's about race. I mean, yes. I mean, I, I, this all occurred before we had the George Floyd killing and the Black Lives Matter. But yes, it was very much on my mind. It's been on my mind a long time. And, you know, trying to, I've always been trying to think of a way to write about it that is, you know, entertaining, yet real. Um, and so, yeah, I do try to, I do try to connect my little community in this corner of Wisconsin to the bigger themes and, and conflicts in the culture. Absolutely. Do you have a connection with that area of Wisconsin? I do. I've. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Um, I'm a fly fisherman, a trout fisherman, and this area is has spectacular fly fishing because it it is because of its geology. It has thousands of miles of spring creeks. Water just sort of bubbles up out of the ground, pure and cold. And so I've been out there camping and fishing forever. And I have some land out there that I have a camper on that I used to write in and so forth. So, you know, it's kind of my way of having it both ways. I'm going to write, but I might as well write about something I, I love and a place I love. So, my, yeah, my connection is, is personal. It's just a place that I am very fond of and spend a lot of time in. I know it very well. I, you know, subscribe. We, that's an area that still has weekly local papers, newspapers, actual newspapers. And I, you know, read them cover to cover. I mean, everything, including the menus at the old folks home and the city council board meetings and the school board meetings. And, the, you know, so it's, it's just a, a place where I'm able to fully immerse myself. 
That's wonderful then that you were able to set the books there, almost a way of giving back a little bit to an area that you love. I hope, although I, you know, some pretty nasty crimes take place, and I'm still waiting for the local who says, now, wait a minute. <laughs> what are you doing? Right. I don't remember us actually having this type of crime here. Right. That'll happen someday, but yeah. Is it hard to keep coming up with plots? I know when you're writing a mystery series, this is your third, but I'm sure you're in the middle of writing your next one and maybe even your one after that. Is it hard to keep coming up with ideas? It's the most challenging part for me, actually. I think it's whether it's a weakness or not, I'm not sure, but it doesn't really seem to come naturally to me. But what does come naturally to me is complexity, I think. I'm still waiting for myself to come up with that elegantly simple idea that is just propulsive and can't you can't go wrong. Yeah, it is hard, it is hard for me to do that. And partly because I really want multiple plots that intersect. I think the best way to tell a story, especially in this environment where you know, it's a it's not a commonly known place. I think I need multiple viewpoints. I try to always have one viewpoint be an insider, uh, somebody from the community who knows where the bodies are buried, basically. And I try to have one point of view and one storyline be an outsider, somebody who's come in from the outside and therefore has a reason to describe things and perceive things and ask questions. And then I have Heidi Kick, who's you know running the whole show, and I want three storylines, actually, that intersect and come together at the end. So, yeah, that's a challenge for me. I'll spend months, basically, working on that, writing in a notebook, backing up, starting over. It's a challenge. I do have an idea for the fifth one. The fourth one's almost done, and the fifth one, I think I've got an idea. So do you just sometimes, when you're living your life and you're out and about, think, oh, that would be great, and just write it down? Or do you just wait until it's time to focus on your next book and think, okay, now I need to try to start pulling my ideas together? Mostly the former. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly looking over, looking around, keeping my eyes and ears open for the next thing. I get most of my ideas from the newspaper, the local newspaper, the Crawford County Scout Independent. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I'm always sort of processing that next idea as I go. And I'll go very soon now, I will be shifting into almost an editing mode on the fourth book. So that will overlap with brainstorming and planning on the next one. Well, I guess with a series, it's probably kind of nice that you're working across several of them because there is a story arc, not just within each book, but across the entire series. So maybe it kind of keeps you in it a little more. If you're working on like book three is coming out now, you're working on book four, you're thinking about book five can sort of help you determine what Heidi's life is going to look like down the road. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She's going to be in trouble at the end of book four and have to work her way out of it in book five. I know that. I'll <laughs> See, there you go. Do you want to talk a little bit about book four, or are you not in the process of wanting to do that yet? Well, I, the challenge with book four is the pandemic, how that transformed basically a whole, what, year, year and a half, and, and which would have been the year and a half that I was writing about in the sequence of Heidi's life. So that book, I actually threw away a bunch of it because it was eventually seeming to me like it was about something that wasn't going to be real. I had a, a foreign exchange student get lost in the bad acts. And I thought, well, you know, the period of time that this book is going to take place in, nobody's sending their kid over to the United States. So yeah, the challenge was really to figure out how to, because I'm always trying to connect with the zeitgeist and, and the, the spirit of the times and the themes that are out there, the challenge is how to write about what's been happening to us over this last year without pinning myself to anything too concrete or specific that it can blow up on me later. 
So I've decided that the theme that I'm looking at really is people who, whose lives have been turned upside down, who've lost their livelihoods, whose families have broken up, who've lost people, and who are looking for a reason, looking for an answer, looking for a solution, and looking at things uh, that we might call cults. And so that's the thought process around around the fourth book is is bringing to the bad acts a group of people that the locals don't think belong there, a group of people that are itinerant, that are basically vagabonds, that are following a leader because they don't know what else to do. The leader claims to be claims it's a prosperity church and that if people tithe their income to him, he'll multiply it, so forth. And these people land in Sheriff Kick's jurisdiction and trouble starts. Well, that sounds really good. And with respect to the foreign exchange student, that's a story you can easily table for a future one when we're outside the pandemic. Yes. Did you incorporate COVID into your story? I've been so curious listening to authors as I interview them. And some people feel very strongly about doing that. Some feel very strongly about not doing that. And some seem to be in the middle. So where did you fall? I think I'm in the middle. I think I'm I'm incorporating it in, in this abstract sense of people being, you know, upheaval of their lives, loss of their loss of their livelihoods, searching for answers and a new life. I'm not yet. I mean, I'm not totally made up my mind that people aren't walking around wearing masks. And I don't know what about that yet. I guess that's something I can decide on somewhat later. But I'm not specifically mentioning the pandemic in the book. But I'm mentioning that you know that one of the one of the characters who actually actually the the dead man at the beginning of the book is somebody who's has directly lost his livelihood as a result of the pandemic and has you know basically lost his mind and joined this cult and ends up dead and that starts the book. So I guess I'm in the middle. I'm not trying to write a book about the pandemic or everybody's you know walking around wearing a mask. I'm trying to write a book about the pandemic on the more thematic level. I think it's really hard to know exactly what to do, because obviously early on, nobody thought we'd still be here however many months later, and we don't really know how many more months we will continue to be here. So it's it's difficult to know whether to incorporate it or not. Right. I'm curious to see the fiction that you know is published in the next couple of years and see how people handle it. I agree completely. It'll be very fascinating to see how that unfolds. Yeah. I always enjoy talking about titles. I think that they say a lot about a book oftentimes on several levels. What kind of say do you have in your title? Do you start out with the title that ends up on the book? How does all that work for you? All of my titles have been changed. <laughs> all of them. Well, there you go. Yeah. And, and maybe for the best, you know, what do I know, right? I, I think it's a collaborative effort to get a book published and sold and marketed and everything else. And so, you know, I trust the perceptions of, of people that, that do this for a living and are accountable for that, for that end of it. So, you know, my, my original ideas for titles were close to what they ended up. The second book was actually, in my mind, called White Man Dancing, not Dead Man Dancing. They changed it to Dead Man Dancing, I guess, feeling that the white man thing was too aggressive, too assertive, too race forward or something. And I was sorry to see that go uh, because that book really, to me, is all about the dance that white people do in the face of a long history of racism. But I think the title, as it as it ended up, works as well, too. The third book, Bad Moon Rising, had what my editor called an editorially perfect title, but one that wouldn't work in the marketplace. So what was it? It was From Hell Hollow. Oh, I wonder why they didn't think it would work in the marketplace. I think they thought it would be misleading. I think they didn't like the word hell. I think that they 
the marketing people just sort of that that made them think of horror? Yeah, I could see that as we're talking. I'm thinking, as I say it again, I think probably I, you would, I mean, your covers don't look like horror, but horror covers have kind of evolved, I think, lately. And you don't always know when something's horror. So I do think probably it would make you think horror. Right, right. So, you know, I, I trust them on that. And we end up with Bad Moon Rising, which I think is great. I mean, it's actually the, also the title of a Creedence Clearwater Revival song. It's about, you know, rivers overflowing. It's about cataclysmic environmental events, basically. You know, I don't know why they were singing about that back in the 70s. So in the sense that it sort of harmonizes with that title and that song, it's fine. I love CCR. And I mean, I think most of their songs were really protest about different things and their yeah. music is fabulous. So yes, as soon as I look at your book every time, that song just immediately starts <laughs> playing in my head, <laughs> which is a good thing. I see rivers overflowing. I see trouble on the rise. Yeah, no, it's, yes. I, I guess, I guess now that I, now that I actually think it, it's, you know, it's the environmental movement. This is the, this is the, this was part of, part of the awakening during that period was, hey, we're trashing the earth. Well, yeah, in the late 60s and 70s, I mean, that's when you really did begin to see music that was more political in nature, protesting things that were happening, and they were definitely on the forefront of that. Yeah. Well, what's the best thing about being a writer? Oh, my gosh, being being done. <laughs> <laughs> writing the end. Yeah, there's a quote I love about, about writing, and I, oh, God, Dorothy Parker, I hate writing, I love having written. <laughs> no, I don't know. Writing is my life. I don't I don't even know how to talk about it. I mean, it's it's such a a habit now, I guess. And you know, I think I got into it because I was not a person that liked to talk out loud, liked to, you know, liked to draw attention to myself, didn't feel like I could articulate myself verbally. Felt like if I was going to be my true self, it, you know, it was really going to come out in writing. And I think that's still the case. I think that's you know, the best thing about writing is that's where I'm most me. And since I go there every day, I spend a lot of time being me. Do you have a set pattern for how you write? Every morning. Probably work 350 days a year. Wow. Get up and write and then switch gears. I'm a college writing teacher as well. So I, I switch gears and, and then I, I do more of the same. So, yeah, it's I, I have to get the writing done first because it's where I need the best, my, my clearest energy and, and so forth. And, so I've, I've, you know, created that habit when I was, when I've had my first kid a long time ago, I, I had to get up and get something done before the family woke up. And I'm still doing it all these years later. I hear that a fair amount, because I do think you're the freshest in the morning. You've just woken up, get the writing done, and then you can go about your day, you know, you've accomplished something and you're not worried about your mind getting cluttered the rest of the day and then trying to do it at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it wouldn't work for me, I don't think. I know it wouldn't work for me. <laughs> I'm pretty wasted by about nine o'clock. <laughs> it's hard. What have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, good. I'm glad I can talk about this. I have been falling asleep every night in love with my craft because of a book I'm reading called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. And this is, I don't know if you've heard of this, but this is a writing teacher. I believe he teaches at Syracuse and he's a novelist. And what he does is basically deconstruct several short stories by Russian masters, Chekhov, Tolstoy, and so forth. And he exquisitely and in great detail basically describes the relationship between the writer and the reader, almost every line. You know, the writer does this, what is the impact on the reader? And, and moves through these stories at a snail's pace. And it's fascinating. It is so enlightening. 
and it makes me fall asleep every night in love with writing and reading and the connection between the two. So that's that's one of the things I'm reading. I'm reading a bunch of crime novels that have to do with fishing because I need to write an article about that. I read a number of books in, for Bad Moon Rising. I read a, a couple of really outstanding nonfiction books that I think people might be interested in. I, one of the things that happens in that story is homesteading. I read a fascinating nonfiction book about homesteading called Pilgrim's Wilderness by Tom Kazia. And also in that book is a, is a homeless kid, a kid that's just adrift across the country. And I read a book called Dirty Kids by uh, Chris Earcourt that opened my eyes to this whole subculture of homeless young adults who basically bounce around the country from, you know, one rainbow gathering to somebody's living room and so forth. And that was fascinating as well. Yeah, is that enough? I've got more. I can talk about books all day. Um, No, that's good. I was going to ask you on the fishing stories, and I'm trying to think of his name, Keith McCafferty. I think that's his name. uh, Do you read those? Is that going to be in your list of fishing stories? uh, His first one, I'm going to cover that in my article, uh, The Royal Wolf Murders. Yeah, solid, good stuff. I read in, in, in the same line, I read a fascinating book called The Feather Thief. Oh, yes, I have it, but I have never read it, and I've heard the best things about it. Yeah, yeah, it's nonfiction, but it's about a it's about this kid who gets so into fly tying, tying the flies that fly fishermen use, specifically Victorian salmon flies, which the recipe requires, you know, all of these exotic endangered birds that by the time this kid comes along in like the 2000s are extinct and endangered and illegal to possess and found only in museums. And this kid He's from New York. He goes to England. He breaks into the Royal Museum and where they keep Darwin's collection. You know, all the stuff that Darwin collected on his voyages. He breaks in there and steals all these feathers to tie flies with. Well, I am dying to read that one. And I'm so glad you remind me because I, I have the galley. So, I mean, you know, I have it from a long time ago. But, you know, sometimes those books get by me and then I just don't get back to them. But I really, really, I've heard such great things about it. And that reminds me a little bit of The Falcon Thief by Joshua Hammer. Have you read that? It's also nonfiction. I I don't know that one. What's that about? And he follows this uh, UK resident who goes and steals all these rare falcon eggs and then traffics them. So he goes, you know, to Canada and the US and all over and he traffics them. Some he collects and some he sells to collectors and some he sends over to the Middle East because there's all this falcon racing. And so it was just fascinating, that story, too. And I always felt like they probably had some parallels in terms of what the focus was and things that are rare or extinct. Yeah. yeah. But that's another good one in that line. The Falcon Thief? The Falcon Thief, and the author is Joshua Hammer. Okay. I think he wrote an article in some publication, and I'm not sure which, initially. And then the article did so well that they suggested he turn it into a book. Yeah. yeah so it's yeah. really good. John, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It was very, very interesting to speak with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. John's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories, 
I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.